cool. Okay. So, um, I don't really have questions prepared. Okay. Um, have you listened to any of the other? No. Okay. So, essentially, what I do is I just ask questions. Okay. And then it goes wherever Where it, goes. it goes. Okay. And then you edit it after the fact? Well, so far I haven't. I've just left it intact as a long-form conversation. Sure. But the one thing that kind of stitches it all together is... Um, I'm allowed to ask whatever question I want, mm-hmm. and then the person I'm talking to can either say, I don't want to answer that. Sure. Um, or I can't answer that, you know, sure. potentially in your case. Yep. Um, or they answer it. But the goal is that it's that, like, the theme of the podcast is to sort of. Um, drop the pretense and social barriers sure. that keep us from just talking talking okay so that's kind of it so i mean they, they've been averaging about an hour and a half to two hours okay. i don't know if we'll have that much time or sure. not but but um if if you're uh if you're ready to go Let's i'll do just do a little introduction okay and then we'll start good to go Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Um, I don't have it yet. The The mic is set on the table, so anything that happens to the table during this gets interview picked gets picked up. So okay. elbows, hands, don't like, I don't want you to feel um, like you can't move. Right. Just be aware that okay. it's that it's uh, part of the experience. Okay. <laughs> um, I've got the leaning chair. There we go. Um, okay. Wait. You should set the mic on your coat because it's going to muffle the sound that's coming up, the vibrations. Good idea. Yeah. I am. Now your feedback should be way lower. Good. All right. Ready? Ready. back to another episode of A Simple Life with Michael Jeffries. On this podcast, we attempt to let go of all the subtext and social barriers that hold us back. It isn't about being right or wrong. We're just trying to keep it real. Today, I am interviewing one of my best friends in the whole world. Um, He stood up at my wedding and I stood up at his. Uh, We've gotten kicked out of bars together, crashed my dad's truck, built tree forts, told a pair of cops they couldn't search my car without a warrant just because we could, and um, pretty much every other thing I could hope to do with a best friend. Marty is one of the most intense and most fun people I have ever met, and a lot of life experiences are packed into this hour and a half. If you aren't at least a little mind blown with how much Martin has managed to pack into his life so far as a mid-30s man, then I want to meet you because you've got some stories to tell. Um, A little side note here, Marty and I met through 4-H and we talk about that right at the beginning. If you aren't familiar, 4-H is a program for school-aged kids throughout the United States. 
Um, and it's more well known in rural areas because a lot of the programs are are have to do with like farm animals and things like that. But there's there's a lot of things that city kids can do too. I didn't grow up on a farm and there was plenty to do in it for me. Um, my mom got our family involved when I was pretty young and a bunch of my best childhood memories came from experiences in 4-H. So I guess I'll put a link in the show notes um, for those of you who want to learn more and you can check it out if you want to. Just a little quick disclaimer before we get started. There are curse words throughout this episode, not a ton, but a few. And uh, some of the interview um, gets into war and killing people. So if you don't like that stuff, then uh, then this is an episode you should skip. Uh, okay, let's go. to another episode of A Simple Life with Michael Jeffries. Today is an interview episode, and I'm joined by um, my second oldest friend of all time, who I met when I was 11 or 12. And we met because, A, our parents went to the same church, and B, our dads worked together. And I remember, really, Marty, like... If I remember right, we knew each other in church, but then when our dad started to work together, our parents went out a couple of times and we hung out, and that's when we started to just be friends and no. hang out with each other, it felt like. It was 4-H. We, it was 4-H? Yeah. We went to um, the 4-H exploration days up, at Lance, up in Lansing, and your dad was the RA, and you and I shared a room. Really? Yeah. My dad was there? He was the chaperone. No yep. way. Yep. Your dad was a chaperone. I do remember exploration days. Exploration I, days. I yep. do remember that you and I had some fun times. Yep. <laughs> at the exploration days. Obviously. <laughs> okay. So since that time, we've both grown up, done a ton of different things with our lives. And here we both are, both the same age, um, and pretty much... You know, as far as the different chapters of our life, we've each had very similar chapters, but in different orders, um, I feel like. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I was excited to talk to you, number one, because you're one of my oldest friends. Number two, because you've had some life experiences that I have not had. And um, I'm always, I'm curious. And also mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a great opportunity to catch up, like... Mm-hmm adult life we don't really talk that much not because we don't love each other um or anything or it's not that we don't talk it's that we just have such full lives uh apart from each other i feel like and as kids you know our lives really centered around our homes our churches 4-h uh our friends uh and tree forts tree forts yeah and and we were just very involved back then um so why don't we start with you know um where like what has been happening in your life since kind of walk let's walk back 
start me with whatever you think is relevant for what has shaped you when you were young prior to 18 or 19 because that's when like we both started growing up and we were just weren't in the same place geographically anymore right so prior to that time tell me about your upbringing to kind of set the stage for me but also for anybody who happens to listen to this sure for what made you who you are and kind of because we're going to get into some things in your life that are pretty atypical i think for most people which is why you're so awesome and why i love you so much but i think part of your early life is is the foundation for for that and your ability to see the world in an atypical way and then make those choices um if that makes sense sure so i guess start with wherever makes sense for you um and walk me through it um and we'll start with that first chapter until we get to 19 or 18 sure So I think that the best way to start would be like Loretta Lynn. I was born a coal miner's daughter. Um, <laughs> yeah. On a road in Butcher Holler. No, um, basically, I mean, I think the big thing that brought us together was we met when we were that 12 to 13 or 11 to 12 year old with the 4-H thing. But then after that, we had the church stuff. Mm-hmm. And with both of our parents at the time being fairly conservative Christians, our and being homeschooled that's right we were homeschooled very big subculture we were both yeah part of. so we were both part of that but we were pretty much the only dudes that at least for me that my folks would let us like actually go over to your house and have nights over and stuff like that that I actually really wanted to do that with um and then growing up on the farm you know um, you spent a lot of time over there, I think. Because it was more fun than my house, really. Let's both be honest. Well, I mean, it's 15 acres of, you know, Neverland is what it was in Nottawa, Michigan, where we could not only have the 15 acres of Neverland, but we had the, whole the railroad town, tracks and the lake swamps and the lakes and, you yeah. know, railroad bridges and, you know, um, other than the pedophile that lived down the street, it was pretty safe. <laughs> um, but yeah. he was a town drunk, and you could outrun him. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was a lot of what shaped it. I remember, I think it was 12 or 13, We, I went on a family trip with you guys to the East Coast. Mm, I remember this. Yep. Boston, I think. Yep. Yep. My dad um, went on a business trip and took us along. Yep. I got to bring a friend. And you got to bring a friend, and I was that friend. That was big for both of us, I think. And then it was just kind of, you know, Marty and Mike were kind of inseparable. Um, we flipped your truck together because we went down that one road, and you're like, I bet I can do this in fourth gear. Yeah. That yeah. was not a great We plan. didn't flip my truck. I flipped you my flipped truck. You flipped your truck. I was such a... We, yeah, we were together we were okay. in the truck with that. Yeah, I Thank goodness too. the only thing that got hurt that day was the truck and a tree. Yeah. A we bird. almost hit that big tree. That was almost really bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been bad. You know, and then you started, like, I think 16 to 17, somewhere in there, you started kind of reaching more into your um, political views, and, you know, I started working more in your political stuff that you were involved Mm -hmm. in up until your early 20s, and then I started, you know, at 18, I left. Um, I went down to... 
Arkansas to John Brown to work on my undergrad. Did you go right at 18? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I so had... I stayed in Kel- or Sturgis. Yep. And you left. And I left. I moved down to Arkansas. Right. Um, I came home the summer of my 18th birthday. Uh, went back 19, summer of the 19th. I was engaged to a gal down in Texas that uh, I met over Christmas uh, on AOL. Um at home and I hopped a train down to there. You met her on AOL. Well, she was a friend that I was kind of an annoying 19 year old, 18, 19 year old, a little bit immature. Um, and we just started chatting a lot on AOL because she was a friend of a friend. And they thought we would get along well, and we did. Um, so I ended up down in Dallas for a summer washing windows, living above a paintball field. And that's when awesome. I met the guys at uh, Johns Hopkins. And so I went back for the uh, year two, my sophomore, junior year at John Brown, and then I went out to Baltimore. Okay, hold on. Yeah. We're breezing through a lot of stuff here. I'm going to slow it over, down. Overview, and then we can... So you went to John Brown. You went to John Brown. Yes. And then you... Met a friend of a friend on AOL, chatted her like crazy in Dallas, and she just loves you. Yes. And you like her a lot. Yes. And so it's like, okay, next, or this coming summer, which would be your in-between freshman and sophomore year of college. I sold a longbow on eBay, bought a train ticket, and rode a train down to Dallas to meet her. Oh, yeah, this (laughs) guy. Yeah. Love it. So right after Christmas is over... Selling the longboat, going down to yep. meet this gal. Yep. So you did that. Yep. And you were both like, this is working. This, this is, is good. good. Yeah. So you went back to yep. for your se- next semester at John Brown. Yep. And then that summer, you spent in Dallas, yep. basically spending as much time as you could with this woman. Yep. And for money, you washed windows. Yes. And in lived in a, in a shithole. To save Basically, money. yeah, I, I lived above a paintball field and I worked my rent off um, by doing maintenance on the paintball field. Oh yeah, nice. How'd you meet these people? Uh, another friend. Okay. Just found a guy who owned a paintball field and a, uh, a freaking window washing business. It was definitely not legal to keep me above the paintball field. <laughs> it was not finished at all. It was just an attic with a, a couple of pieces of plywood in it. Was there a shower there? Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So you had the bare necessities. I was okay. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had worse. (laughs) It wasn't bad. Okay, so you're washing windows. Yep. And and you happen to wash some people's windows that work at Johns Hopkins University. Nope, not yet. So it was a Sunday afternoon. I'm still in bed or Sunday morning. My boss calls me and goes, hey, Marty, we really need to wash these folks' windows. Um, I can't get anybody else to go do it but they have to have it done today i'll give you 75 percent of the, the take on it i'm like cool i can use 300 bucks it was rainy it was gross so i load my ladder up into my truck drive up to their town home i'm washing their windows and i'm kind of social so we're talking and it turned out that they were both professors or they were both finishing their postgraduate work at um, southwestern university i think is what it was or SMU, I can't remember which one, in Dallas. Um, but they had both been hired individually over to Johns Hopkins. 
And so they were like, well, we need lab people. After I got done washing windows, we were talking biochemistry and just I was really interested in the work that they were kind of doing. And specifically, the woman was working on myoblast fusion in Drosophila, so fruit flies. Um, and that really interested me, the molecular pathways by which, you know, stuff happens. Why an ear is an ear and not an extra nose. Um, yeah. That was what really interested me. And so she invited me to come be a um, undergraduate intern at her lab the next summer. So I get back to John Brown that fall, talking to Are, my. And you're still with your this. Still with my Dallas woman. The Dallas chick at that. So you point. had a great summer of love. Yep. You summer met. Of love. Uh-huh. You met this great internship opportunity uh-huh. out uh-huh. of the blue. Uh huh. You weren't supposed to meet then. This nope. Kismet moment. Nope. Yep. Yeah. Pretty much. And it now was... you're back at John Brown. Kismet. I like that word. Good. Good word. It's a friend's word. Uh-huh. They gave it to me. I like it better than serendipitous. I'm not sure yeah, why. Kismet is great. Yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, so I'm back at John Brown. I'm talking to my mentor, and I'm telling him what's going on. And he tips his glasses down and goes, <laughs> wait, so you're telling me that you had watermelon with some lady who wants you to come work in her lab at Johns Hopkins. And yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, you got to do it. So, yeah, Johns Hopkins is is, I mean, a, pe- a few people respect it, it, it as it's a, got a research great name. as a yeah. research university in the medical field. So over the course <laughs> of that year, um, kind of realized that my fiance and I were not going to work out. She had some okay. different life plans involving a christian camp in west texas that i wasn't real keen on like she wanted to run a christian camp no like she wanted us to move out there and work for this ministry that's where she felt like god was leading us i see um as a couple um i did not see that um and that was kind of about like a breaking point for her right she told me she wanted right i need she's moving to this camp and i'm coming or she's going without me i'm like well good luck i mean Good for her to yeah. know, because I remember you were pretty torn up. When yeah, it was, it was you pretty guys ridiculous. Broke up. You guys were got engaged and stuff. I yeah. mean, you guys were we into were each other. We were deep. We were deep. Yeah. And um, she laid down the law and said, "You know, the man I'm looking for is the man who does what I want." Yeah, exactly. Or something along those lines, or at least goes with me. Um, well, she wanted yeah. you to follow her in a very specific career path in a very specific location right um and you really weren't allowed to make any decision other than this was the way it was going to go i want to be with you and so i'll do anything right you want to do right and so i kind of just said deuces good for you yeah um the distance probably helped right yeah i think that was eh, maybe i would have said deuces regardless okay um yeah, that wasn't really in the cards for me. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I had plans to go to Sudan. Wanted to do this and that and the other thing. Um, this was during the time that you were in this relationship with yeah. her? 
Because I remember I you were into the Sudan and to be a doctor. Yeah. That was that since was where I was high going. school. Yeah, that was where it was going to go. Since middle school, maybe. Yeah, that was like I was into that since like a long time. A long time. I remember it was Sudan. It was Chad, but it was that it northern. Was same, yeah, it was, it was northern Africa. So Chad was still just um, a jumping off point to get into the Sudanese because Chad oh. and Sudan have a shared border there. Right. And so they had a hospital. The organization that I was working to get with had a hospital um, in uh, in Jamina, um, and I was going to use that as a jumping off point to get into the Sudan. Okay. So that was the master plan. Um, so I went to Johns Hopkins uh, that following summer. Going out there, I didn't know where I was going to live, and just was planning on kind of living in a truck because. You know, if I can live above a paintball field, I can live in a car. Yeah. So why the heck not? Why the heck not? Um, reached out to the um, alumni network at JBU. Oh, wait. So we're back. Yeah. We're yeah. back in the story now. Yeah. Um, you are at John Brown uh-huh. gearing up for this yep. summer internship mm-hmm. at Johns Hopkins. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yep. Yep. You were thinking maybe maybe live in a car if I had to. Yeah. I, I was going to live in a car if I had to. Okay. Like, that's where it was going to go. Yeah. It was happening. It, I was getting to Baltimore one way or another. I didn't realize that Baltimore was quite as ghetto as it is um, Ooh, at the time. throwing the shade at Baltimore. Oh, God. It's, I mean, it's there's ghetto some fabulous. pretty rough the areas of fabulous. Baltimore. They made a whole TV series about it. Right. I mean, there was that whole time that they found the torso in, among the children's dragons in, in the Inner Harbor when I was there. But, Ooh, you know, whatever. I did not uh-huh. hear about I got that. chased by a dude with a samurai sword. That was fun. <laughs> Again, Baltimore's ghetto scary, fabulous. but hilarious. It was amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. Don't make fun of the men doing Tai Chi with swords in the park. <laughs> Okay, I won't. I Life won't. lessons. <laughs> Life lessons. So <laughs> I got a hold of um, the ne- alumni network at John Brown who reached out to some people in Baltimore. And a man named Joe Beach was like, yeah, you can come live in our basement. So you were he, w- he had went to John Brown uh-huh. and uh-huh. It just was on the email list. Yep. And the alumni... Uh-huh person at john uh-huh. brown was like sure we can email the, the list yeah, why not? that's the that's a nice thing about a so small good. christian college is yeah the bureaucratic levels are fairly simply horizontal low. yes yeah so um mr beach was a pentecostal preacher in in baltimore and worked with special ed third graders in Whoa. the inner city schools so i moved in with a pentecostal preacher and that's uh cool. that and was his wife and two kids or yep. three kids Two, two kids, um, Joe Beach Jr. and Nashanta, and uh, yeah, that was that was an education for a small town kid from the Midwest going and living in inner city. Baltimore. Small town white kid. Small town white kid going and living with an inner city Pentecostal African American um, preacher family. Yeah, um, I learned I a lot that summer. Yeah, um, like what? What's something that stands out? Give uh, me a good well, like at one culture point, shock moment. I knew where. Uh, the beaches were, and I come rolling into this this house that um, they had told me that they were all at, and I just opened the door and let myself in, and the old woman grabs for a shotgun, and Mr. Beach like, no, that's our dumb white boy. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Marty, you almost got yourself shot, son. You don't do that around here. She's like, we thought you were going to, you know, or she thought you were going to freaking um, 
try and rob her. And I'm like, okay, well, lesson <laughs> no, learned. No, that's our dumb white boy. <laughs> yeah, that's our dumb white boy. Um, another time, a friend and I were out and about, and uh, we were talking to these people, and they were going to pay a drunk homeless guy a dollar to go run off the end of the uh, pier into the harbor. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So we're, it was Josh Wickey and me. And, okay. Uh, he and I were just kind of wandering around doing Josh Wickey and Marty things, and um, Josh is, you know, doing what Josh did best, which was preaching and, and talking to people about Jesus, and cool. that was awesome. And uh, this drunk guy and, and was getting paid by these kids to go jump off the end of a pier, and Josh is talking to one of them, and, you know, the kid is really confused about having value as a human and that this homeless drunk dude also had value as a human. And yeah. then we're chasing after him while they're chasing this drunk dude to chase him down to the water. And then we get down to the water and um, this ginormous man comes off of a tugboat. He starts talking, like grabs the drunk guy and throws him off and then grabs two of the kids and smashes them together. And he's like, y'all are fucking not going to do anything like that. He's going to die and yada, yada, yada. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we had a good time with that one. That was when Josh had dengue Ooh. the first time. Yeah, so we did that. So it was, that was, it was an interesting summer. I learned a lot. Yeah, so that was that summer, and then... Uh... And for context, Josh is a little bit older than us. Yep. And he was never really close with me. Right. Um, but you and him became very, very, very close... When I worked at Dynamic as a draftsman. Okay. Like yeah. at the end of high school and yep. right before, before I left, you went for John yeah. Brown. For a couple of years, I was working as a draftsman from about 16 to 18 at the company that your dad owned. Um, or his co-owner with Lee with. I don't know their exact business relationship, but whatever. Um, and Josh was a, that was his first engineering job out of college from Western. And I was a draftsman there at the time. And he became kind of a a mentor friend to mm-hmm. me before I left for John Brown. So And that relationship stayed very, very tight. Very tight all the way up until he passed. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a fairly recent thing. About a month and a half, two months ago, yeah. 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 Um, so after JB, you know, after Johns Hopkins, I decided to not go back to John Brown because it was super expensive and I had a whole bunch of student loans and decided to move back to Michigan, finish my degree at Western because I figured that with my experience from Johns Hopkins, I could get a job in a lab and get the experience I needed that would still give me access to medical school. I see. So you'd had two years at John Brown. Yep. Just finished this Yep. Really nice yep. resume line item at Johns yep. Hopkins over the summertime. Yep. Now is go to Western Michigan University in a biochem yep. uh, capacity. Undergrad, yep. going to medical school. Yep. That line item that John Hopkins experience was gonna pave the way for you to get back into another lab yep. and get good marks to get into a yep. prestigious med school. Nailed it. Okay. Didn't work out that way. Um, came back, nobody really cared, couldn't really find a uh, internship in a lab. Um, I applied to about probably 200 different places. Wow. Nothing worked. Like I applied Whoa. to everywhere, everywhere within a 50 mile radius I tried. Um, wow. Whether it was companies or labs or, you know, um, freaking draftsmen or whatever, trying to find something that would pay enough for me to get back and forth to school 
pay my school stuff and then all of that so from there um, the last place I tried was the Men and Country Inn um, and I was just driving back from you know another like freaking failed I need a job at one of the factories in Menden um, now I just need a job now I just need a job I was looking at anything yeah that would work with my schoolwork. yep I was getting desperate and so I roll up there and I walk in and Jeff is in the back and uh, I walk in the back and I'm like hello hello and he's in the back cooking and he's like yeah can I help you and I'm like well hi I'm Marty I need a job and uh, just seeing if you guys need your floor swept or anything and he's like well not right now we're trying to get ready for this big dinner tonight but uh can you come back tomorrow and bring your resume because we can always use another hand around here and so i go back the next day and i bring my resume and jeff and cheryl and i sat in the backyard and had tea because they're uh um south african and i remember i'll never forget jeff <coughs> sitting in a chair in the garden and he takes his glasses down he goes so you can do confocal microscopy whatever the hell that is <laughs> and you want to sweep my floors and i'm like yes sir i just need to get back forth to school he's like well if you can do chemistry you can cook so why don't uh why don't you come out here on saturday and uh i'll start teaching you to be a chef what we're about to open a restaurant so, whoa Came back on Saturday, worked a 12-hour shift uh, at the back of the house doing, we did a fix or prefix menu um, there, and I started learning to cook, and I learned to cook from Jeff, and we went from nothing to like three or four hundred meals a, a weekend, um, with Saturday and Sunday being the biggest prefix menus that we would do. Um, I did that for a couple of years before I went back to drafting for a company in Middlebury, um, and then uh, that was towards when I was going to graduate and I kind of realized at that point that last year that I needed to not be a doctor or I wasn't going to be a real good doctor because I mm. was kind of prejudiced towards fat people, smelly people, sick people. I didn't like most children. Um, okay. So that was probably not the right place for me. Well, definitely not a family doctor. No, Maybe a surgeon not. when they're and just smokers. under. Yeah, I didn't like really that. like like smokers either okay um so Good standards about the way people should care for their bodies well yeah it was it was one of those things I'll, I'll never forget seeing a dude smoke through a trach and going what a waste he should just die smoke through a trach yes he was wow. smoking with a trach just holding the cigarette up to his throat whoa yeah that guy is committed he was he was what i think you would term an addict uh yeah uh-huh couldn't stop smoking to the point that he was smoking through a tracheotomy um, and that was where I kind of realized I didn't want to do that. Um, I started looking at grad schools and couldn't really find a good fit for me for grad school that was actually not going to cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. And so I remember being at home talking to my dad one night and I go, Dad, I, I think I'm going to end up being 40, living in your basement and making 20 bucks an hour as a draftsman. It's about everything that I've done. And he goes, you know, maybe... But I know uh, that's probably not going to be the basement. I know where there's a nice bridge, or uh, we can go talk to the Navy recruiter. So we went and we talked to the officer recruiter. I talked to. And him this is, week. I mean, for those for those who 
for 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 reference, your father did twenty years. In yeah, the Navy. he was retired. My grandfather was in the Navy, and I think my great grandfather had a stint as well in World War One time frame. So I was okay. fourth generation. Yeah. So this is not just no. some out of the blue idea that your father had. This was something that no, this was in this, his family. This made sense. Yeah, and it got me like, you know, I looked at potentially going to some of the other services, but I didn't like the army and I didn't really want to be cold. So the navy was where I figured I could be on the water and be places that were warm. So it was most likely, you know, the coldest place I'd ever end up would be Norfolk. Not Alaska. No. Do you mind if we pause? Sure. I do need to take this one. Sure. Thanks, man. Hey, buddy. Uh, I know he's here in San Diego. No problem. Okay. Where were we? We were... Um, you just finished at the Country Inn. You oh, decided yeah. med school wasn't for you. So I joined the Navy. So you joined the Navy. Yeah. So I ran into, Dad and I went to the recruiter. I had super long curly hair at that point. Um, I took the officer placement test and did pretty good. He's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, being a pilot sounds pretty cool. So they signed me up to be a pilot in the Navy. At that point, I didn't know that they flew helicopters or anything like that. They actually have the largest, you told me this, I think. <laughs> yeah. The largest of all the branches as far as things in the air yeah yeah they have a bajillion like it's it's the largest air force in the world is the u.s air force the second largest air force in the world is the u.s navy uh, <laughs> the third largest is the u.s army uh, <laughs> yep. so yeah um yeah i didn't know they had helicopters i didn't know anything about it i hadn't seen top gun like most of my cohorts had like they all thought i was a weirdo okay um so you OCS. took an officer placement court thing and it was a high score and, and the they're guy like, was like what do you want to do bro you, you can do like, whatever you want and i was I like i don't know i don't know this what would you cool. do yeah exactly <laughs> it's like well and i was like honestly i looked at him like honestly i think my job opportunities for after the military are going to be best if i'm a pilot so hmm. i picked with the idea that i was going to go in do a stint as a pilot get out go be a pilot somewhere else for the rest of my life and that was going to be my career okay. i was going to learn a skill Okay. Um, so instead of being a doctor, you were going to fly things. I was going to fly things. Cool. Yeah. So from there, I went to OCS in um, Newport, Rhode Island. That and was a great time. Officer Candidate School. Right. So if you don't go to one of the military branches, universities, if right. you go in after as an officer, right. you go to one of these things. Yes, and it's, it's boot camp, camp for officers. officers. Yeah, that's okay. all it is. Okay. Um, it's exactly like they show in, or not exactly, but very similar to what they show in... Um, uh, an officer and a gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. War spoons and all. Like it, it is what it is. <laughs> war spoons and yeah. all. Uh huh. Um, so, <laughs> so got out of wasn't that. Wasn't Richard Gear? So yeah. That old Richard Gear yep, movie. If you yep, want to know what OCS is like, go watch, watch, that. watch an officer and a gentleman. So from there, I went down to flight school in um, Pensacola. Pensacola was a blast. Um, yeah, you. I visited down there, yeah. and you were like, it was like such a good fit for you I, where you were living what you yeah. were doing i lived on you were a hanging swamp out. and had a cool couple of dive bars i basically turned into shrek i had my own cat 
and it you, was you awesome. Volunt- you made meals at a homeless shelter yeah. once a week. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I had a, a really strong network. Terrible in flight school because I focused on everything but flying. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, but all they said so was the book work wasn't that fun for you. No, actual flying wasn't that. That was not what was interesting to me. Now, seeing what was at the bottom of that swamp, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, I ran my butt around the swamp and I did really bad in flight school and honestly got kind of a, a shit deal out of it because it took so long to get through like they'd only fly me like once or twice a month which really that, yeah my consistency was really low so my scores were not great but somehow i ended up getting san diego what was that normal did other people get more regular hours or they um yeah you normally were flying three or four times a week okay so they just didn't like you or something i don't know i think it was because my name started in y and when they did the scheduling they'd go alphabetically oh Oh, dang. Okay. That's really what it would come down to. Um, And, yeah. So, made it out to San Diego. Um, So, you got out of flight school. Yep. Got your credential. Yep. Now you're getting a post. Yep. Okay. So, they sent me, after I graduated from Hilo School, they sent me to San Diego. And now you're an ensign? Is that what you are? I was a lieutenant junior grade. Okay. So, you Um, moved down from ensign to lieutenant junior grade. Okay. Um... You go by numbers now. Uh, yeah. O two. O two. So just just to to make it easy, because Navy ranks are so different than everybody else. Okay. So an O two, the second lowest officer. Okay. Don't know anything at all. Okay. Um, so I get to San Diego. On the way there, stopped in Houston for a week. Um, met my family. Your family had moved from, from Michigan, Michigan to Houston to during Houston. this time. Yep. And they got involved in Christian Youth Theater. Yeah. Um, and then I met the gal there who is my little sister's friend, Melanie, who I would eventually marry. Okay. So we went on a couple of dates while I was there. So this is kind of like a family setup yep. thing. Yep. They all thought that Melanie should be their sister. <laughs> and you were a convenient guy. I thought it was great. <laughs> She yeah. actually came out for my winging. It was really funny. Oh, really? With the family? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. She uh, She's in cool. all my winging photos, which is really freaking funny. Um, <laughs> so we uh, we hit it off real well. Um, and, and she's quite a bit younger than you. She's 27. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes her, what, eight years younger than you? Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. So she... Uh, I mean, and back when this was happening, she was like... Foxy. 18, 19, 18, and 18 you're like and in Foxy. your mid to late 20s. I'm 26, she's 18. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm Mr. Richard Gere with my wings and, right. and you know, whites and right. she's hot stuff, ninja girl, and yeah. So. Yeah, she's a, uh, almost went to the Olympics with yeah, the American yeah. Taekwondo team. Uh, yeah, she like was, that. that's what she eventually moved to San Diego kind to do. Badass. Was to uh, um, go to the Olympics. So she, shortly after I got out there, we still are talking. She comes out to see me for a few weeks, goes home, and then moves out. Okay. And uh, then shortly after that, we eloped. And Okay, so this 18, 19-year-old yep. moves out to San Diego with this older man. Yep. Uh, and, and at some point, it just became inevitable. Yeah. Let's just tie this knot on. Yeah, let's just, let's just do this the right way. Okay. So, yeah. Um, we, uh, you know. And this is, you're in San Diego. Yes. 
uh, flying helicopters. Yep. Okay. Yep. We're flying. Heli- I'm flying helicopters. Um, yeah, and then uh, she moves out. I'm still flying helicopters. I get in my second helicopter crash. Ooh. Yeah. And um, normally, like, I, if I remember right. People don't really crash helicopters very often. Right. Um, so my first one was while well, I was in flight school, um, flying cross country from Pensacola to Austin. I was in the back, the two pilots up front, they hit a bird, then we overtorqued the engine, and then we hit a wire and crashed in Burton, Texas. Whoa. Yeah, which so is... So you were just a passenger. I was just a passenger. That was scary. I never really got back my, my guts for flying after that, because that was enough that I was just like, yeah, I shouldn't have been alive. Wow. Yeah, a wire strike in a helicopter normally equals death. Um, Whoa. Yeah, especially at the altitude that we were at. And, like, it was bad. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of when I lost my appetite for flying, but I still had a career. So yeah. I moved out with the Navy and... You know, and then in flight school, um, I had another crash that was my fault this time. I performed the wrong maneuver and ended up crushing the tail strut and doing about a hundred grand worth of damage. And this was out in San Diego. Yep. Okay. Um, and they put me up for what's called a field naval aviation evaluation board and decided that I would keep my wings, but I would not um, continue to fly. After another flight, after that, they did an ATOPS check, and it just—they decided they weren't going to fly me. And which is a very normal response, yeah, right? Is that's normal. Just Anything over class Bravo, or yeah, class Bravo and above, you are required to do a FNAB. So they sent me back through training, and then I failed another one more flight, and that was when um, they go, "Yeah, you're done." Okay. Did yeah. they take your wings at that point? Nope, kept the wings. So you can you can fly. Yeah. Up till now. I still fly. You still have your wings. Yeah. I was um, up when I went to Portland a couple of years ago. I rented a plane and bombed around the mountains for a while. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you're in San Diego. You have another crash. Yeah. It's your fault. You go to the review and yep. they say, we love you, but you can't fly anymore. Well, for us. It, it was more, I did really well. I went through the re went through the syllabus again because everybody's like, dude, he's literally not gotten consistent flying his entire career. Yeah, did really well. There was all like the way up things to that the stacked up. Yeah, uh huh. All the way through a check ride, failed a check ride, and then at that point the admiral goes, well, sorry, we got to get rid of people this year. Force restructure. You're gone. This was during a time in our country when the military we was constricting. Yep. Yeah, especially in our my career field. Yep. So at that point, I got out of the Navy, moved to Texas to go back to work at, at Dynamic. How, how does that work? So you got out of the Navy as an officer. Did you yep. have a contract that was just up? or No, they, they truncated my contract. So they said, we want to help you leave. Yeah, they were like, yeah, it, it's time for you to go do something else now. Okay. There's no other place for you in the Navy at this point because... We're constricting. We're getting rid of people. Right. It's just the way it is. Right. So I got off of active duty into the reserves and moved to Texas. And the reserves were your choice? Yes. Okay. I fought to stay in the reserves. Oh, okay. I wanted to be in the reserves. Good for you. Um, went to Texas, started working on my master's degree. This was where your family was, so mm-hmm. it was natural yep. to move back? Yep. And you are a married man right now? Yep. 
And you and your wife mm-hmm. move back to Texas. Yep. Buy a house. Yep. Start life. Yep. Um, and that was we, a nice adventure out west. A lot of fun. Good adventure in the Navy. Yep. Saw the world. Had a yep. blast. Yep. Now let's go grow back up. To, to being an engineer. Okay. Um, or playing one on TV. So I moved back to San or to Houston with the wife. Um, and she starts working at a Christian radio station. I am working for a engineering company for about a year, and then they go bankrupt, and I lost my job. So then I find a job with a paper company in Alabama, um, and we moved to Alabama. She starts going to school to work on her degree. Um, and how did you find that through just just a headhunter? A headhunter, a, yeah. They just found me a job with, or found a, a place, and I interviewed, and they offered me a, a pretty decent salary, and I moved out there to be a project sure. engineer. Yeah. So okay. Then I was doing constru- or capital construction on a paper mill. Okay. Um, we bought a house, re, like flipped the house or to flip. She's working on her degree, and then, um, yeah, I worked there for about two years. When we were getting ready to buy our house is when I kind of realized it was not the place for us. Um, hmm. It was very deep woods Alabama and very racist. Rural Alabama. Rural deep woods. It's this the was the town that of... Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird about. Okay. I actually got to meet Miss Lee before she passed. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a pretty cool yeah. life experience. So the, the ex-wife and I went to um, the Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery with her and some of her friends, Okay, which was cool. Whoa. Yeah. You went so. on a social outing with Harper Lee? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's boss. For everybody that said, you know, she was not cognizant in the later years of her life, they are absolutely wrong. That woman played the old lady card very, very well, but she was brilliant. <laughs> And completely there. She just gave no fucks. Oh, I like about it. About anything. At all. <laughs> she really enjoyed screwing with people. Um, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. Um, and then when I was getting ready to buy my house, one of the people that I worked with at this multinational paper company pulled me aside and goes, Marty, you don't want to buy that house. I'm like, why? And she's like, well, black people live next door. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, black people live next door. I'm like, okay. Mm. She's like, well, when they moved in next to my sister, my purse got stolen out of my truck. I'm like, well, might have had something to do with both your nephews being in jail right now for meth, and that being the meth capital of Alabama. But, you know, sure, we can blame it on someone's skin color. And she's like, well, I just want you to know that you shouldn't buy that house. Wow. Yeah. And this was a an educated, like, knowledge worker working it was, at She was more educated than than most but i mean educated is relative okay in that town but i mean i'm just trying to establish yeah. the fact that this was not this, this was, was not someone some who had been part of the a multinational local joke no this, this was, was somebody who had traveled this was an upstanding minute. citizen in the community yeah um and that was when i kind of realized that that just wasn't going to be the place for us it's going to be hard to be yeah. a community member in a place that's so different from your values yeah very very different yeah. um my wife at the time and I definitely didn't feel that way about anybody, and it turned out that the uh, African-American family next door were some of the 
I mean, you lived most with a black educated. family. Yeah, literally. I lived with a black family in, in, in Baltimore. inner city Baltimore uh, and would and go to church as the only white person in they the entire church. They were your son. These they are, referred I, to you I, as I your... I still like... call Papa Beach. <laughs> like, yeah. I talked to Papa Beach about every six months, so... Um, so, yeah, I can't even imagine how that yeah, must so, have felt like a slap in the face. Especially like, because the... Punch the, in the gut. The These are matriarch of the family next door was... You know, she was a uh, a loan validator for the state of Alabama with a master's or a PhD, and he was one of the engineering supervisors for Austell Engineering. So they were extremely wealthy, extremely educated, and just an awesome family. Dang. And yeah, I just couldn't cotton to that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was trying to find a way out and jobs elsewhere and not okay. getting along real well. And I, Mel, her mom got cancer about this time. Hmm. And, uh, I texted her one night and, um, she go or and go, Hey, I think I'm going to apply for this job in the Navy. Do you mind? And, um, it was a job to go volunteer for mobilization to Afghanistan. Whoa. Yeah. So I was back going back to active and back yep. to deployment. Getting on active duty and going overseas. Whoa. Yeah. So. You were not having a good time where you were. Afghanistan was a thousand times better than Alabama ever could be. Weren't you, didn't you start a new division and start a company and stuff like that in there? Oh yeah, somewhere? I forgot about an Alabama company. Yeah, I did start a drone company when I was in Alabama um, doing, or trying to do, um, forestry surveys using LIDAR and some multi and hyperspectral imaging to go through some health and biomass surveying. Okay. Um, and you'd done that because you'd brought a drone program to yeah. this multicultural or mm -hmm. multinational mm -hmm. so paper company. I realized that we could use drones for inspection. Um, I don't know if they're still doing it or not, but my proof of concept using drones was to go and do like valve checks and internal tank the stuff, stuff the guys are doing when yeah. they climb up there. So it saved it. It had the potential to save several million dollars a year in um, scaffolding. So that's the route that I was going down, and it was pretty cool. Cool. Um, and then you started your own company on the side? I started my own company. Or did you quit and go full no. time on the? No, I, I started that on the side with a, okay. a friend of mine. Cool. Um, we bought a really expensive drone from a company called Hoverfly Solutions, and it exploded the first time we used it, which... <laughs> wow. uh, wasn't real happy about that. No. That's on YouTube. Um, and then from there, uh, shortly after that, the technology that we were trying to develop was usurped by satellite imagery. Oh, I see. Okay. So, they so you'd have to find a different use case, completely right. different business yes. model. Yep. Which put us back. We were out of money and had no way to continue to fund this thing. Right. And you weren't having a great time where you were living right. or with that company. Yep. So clean So I jumped break. in the military. And off I went. And your wife was like, sure, She yeah. said sure in text, and then I told her about it in person. We were going to dinner, and uh, she started crying. She was not real happy about that, because she was like, you talk about doing different things all the time. It could be NASA this week. It could be the CIA next week. It could be freaking, you know, Azerbaijan being a yak farmer the week after. Okay. So when you say, hey, I want to go do drones in the Navy in Afghanistan, and I over say text. yes over text... I figured we were at least going to talk about it first. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have said yes. And so six months later, I was on a plane to Afghanistan. Whoa. Yep. Um, so you obviously got the job. Yeah, they took me. And and you were going to Afghanistan. July of 2015, I went on active duty orders again. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, As an O2. 
03 at this point. So they promoted you yep, into an 03 role. Uh, I was promoted at, so the way promotion works in the military, um, at 24 months you get 02, at 48 months you get 03, and then you compete for 04. So, so through because 01 through 03 are automatic based automatic. on time. Fogamir and and then pulse, after that, and then it's, it's a real out. promotion right. against your peers. Yes, and I never thought that I would actually get it um, because it... You uh, had that tarnish on your record of a crash or yep, whatever. exactly. The crash and everything else. So You were going to be there, 03 for as long as you were in right. the military. Yep. Okay. Um, that was just the way it was going to be, and I was never going to do it again. Um, so I went to Afghanistan, had a really good bang up time there. And what were you, what you were flying drones for the special the Navy? forces for the, we were farmed out to the army for, for the army, um, green berets. Okay. And you were working on a team of I reconnaissance led, drone operators. Yeah. So I led the team. I got to take another break. I'm sorry. It's okay. Hey, Tom. I'm good. Oh, good. You're a busy guy. Something like that. <clears throat> okay, so you're in Afghanistan. Yep. You sold your house in Alabama. Alabama. Bought a house in Texas. You bought a house in Houston, Texas. Yep. This is where your wife is going to live. Yep. Back where your family and her family yep. live. She's um, working at a Christian radio station in Houston. Yep. I'm working in. Middle of nowhere, Afghanistan. Okay. Doing God's work. Doing God's work. Making the grass grow. Um, leading a team of unmanned drone operators um, as we fight ISIS and the Taliban. Okay. Yeah. And this was this was kind of after we dug into Afghanistan, right? Like you were... We'd been there for years. Yeah. You were in a, a well-established base mm-hmm. compound type place. Yep. yep. I was a FOBIT. What's a FOBIT? So a FOB is a forward operating base. Okay. I was, as the OIC, I was, I never left the base. What's an OIC? Officer in charge. Okay. So. So you had a little group of guys yep. that you were responsible for, yep. and you were there, it, at that base. I was the... I was one of the more senior ranking officers on the base, um, and I ran a team of about 12 to 20 people, depending on the day. Okay. Running up to 36 hours of flight time a day. And these were all guys sitting at computer screens with controls? Doing drone stuff. Flying drones around. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And your job was to solve their problems, run the team, Mm -hmm. make sure they're good to go. Manage airspace, manage people, and manage problems. Okay. Yeah. So what did your day look like? Um, well, I'd wake up in the morning, um, go get some breakfast. They had the best scrambled eggs. God, I love their scrambled eggs. Really? Oh, man. Did you have your own room? Did you yeah, live in a I had barracks? my own room. Yeah, we, okay. we lived in an old barracks in um, eastern Afghanistan, and it was it was really a good life. The gym was right there. The food was right there. Um, nothing crazy going on, anything like that. Um, you know, you get rocketed sometimes, you get shot at, you have suicide bombers hit, whatever, but like for the most part. What do you mean? They'd come to the base and try and blow it up? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And we'd get hit with rockets every day and like whatever. 
Well, is that scary? I mean, were people in your base they freak being out, but hurt? I mean, after, yeah, we had a couple people die. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you're going to get hit with a rocket, you're going to get hit with a rocket. I mean, after the first couple hundred of them, you don't really think about it too much. Okay. So, so if it's your time to go, you're going to go. If you're going to go, you're going to go. Uh, you're going to meet Jesus, you're going to meet Jesus. Um, sure. Well, so, and I mean, that makes sense. You're in a hostile environment. Right. You are doing work war. that is hostile work. Right. You are you are in a war or a war. You are waging war against another combatant against enemy combatants mm-hmm. on their turf. So you are doing what you signed up to do, which yeah. is provide a target that isn't in the U.S. And what do, great. what do you feel about these? Because I've read these accounts of these drone operators that are like that are based in the United States that have this massive, and this is just sure. what I've read. I have no sure. experience with this, but they, they talk about how they, there's this, like, they have this like conscience problem where they're completely safe. They go home to their families at night. Mm-hmm. They're not shot at. They basically just play a video game all day, every day yeah. and pictures get taken. People die. Right. That kind of stuff. You end lives graphically, uh-huh. but you are, in territory in Afghanistan, so we are what's called tactical. You are areas. not going home to your family at night. No, uh-uh. people are dying around you. Uh-huh. You're not leaving the base necessarily. Uh-huh. The the drones are still doing the dirty the things work. and stuff. Yeah. Um, would you? Do, is there any? Yes. Does that make sense? What the, the what other pe- what other drone operators have accounted for in that? that feeling of there like I'm a, not an honorable soldier or warrior because I'm not there, there in harm's way. There are unique mental health issues with unmanned systems that okay. anyone in a combat environment is going to have some problems. Brain problems. Yeah. Okay. Like like William Money said, it's a hell of a thing to kill a man. Hmm. Take all he's had and all he's ever will be. And that's nothing that you can ever take lightly. Um, one of the books that really helped me was a book called On Killing, hmm. um, which talks about the impacts of sustained combat over time on the human psyche. Um, and just how, as humans, we adjust to that. And it's a very similar process to like living in... You know, they, they talk about the same things coming from people that lived in, like, concentration camps and stuff like that. Or the south side of Chicago. South side of Chicago. Or, okay. you know, Africa through the Completely Rwandan hostile environments. Yeah. Um, it's hard to trust people. Humans are damn cockroaches, dude. Hmm. Like, we can have our legs and arms blown off and still live pretty decent lives. We can lose huge portions of our body. We can We can adjust to... Um, enslavement we can adjust to starvation we can adjust to anything humans are cockroaches wow and you know we can we can survive nuclear blasts um it's interesting because it uh you adjust and, and you deal with it but with drone operators where you have people that have some of the combat illnesses or combat mental health illnesses that come with that. You know, they can talk about their time in an honorable fashion where, you know, they're fighting 
the Japanese or the Vietnamese or, you know, the Afghanis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some honor to what they were doing. With a drone operator, there's a stigma associated with what we do because the feeling is you're not in danger. You're not in harm's way yourself. You're not in harm's way yourself. And you're also like, what does it matter? What's the difference between watching somebody die on NCIS and watching somebody die on the screen that you're... Is this really reality? Right. So Can my brain just make up that this is some fake game? Right. Can you? How do you deal with it? You know, how do you deal with the fact that your job is to, you know, follow a dude, learn his lifestyle, make sure that he's a terrorist? Um, and by terrorist, I mean targeting women, children, peaceful organizations, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, follow him, learn his lifestyle, learn when he's going to be alone, kill him, and then figure out who takes his body parts out of the hole that you just created and then go kill them in the same fashion you're hunting humans on screen um and that's where the impacts to drone operators are different than the impacts to just about anybody else in the military because they don't someone on the battlefield right yeah okay you know they they do come to grips with you know the people that they see and that they're fighting but they're not learning the intimate details of their lives down to, you know, they do wash on Tuesday afternoons and then this is when they're taking baths and this is how many kids they have, this and that and the other thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so really like, kind of like uh, Bruce Willis's character on Gross Point Blank, like being a hitman and you learn about when the best time is to take the hit, mm-hmm. and then you do it. Mm-hmm. But it's all done completely remotely. You never meet these people. Right. You you intimately learn who and what they are as a person, and then you end it. Through technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you, I mean, what would you experience as a leader help, with your team through that? I mean, does that stuff happen while you're on the field, the the mental health issues, or does that kind of manifest after people come back? Or like, what's that like on base? And were you guys, was there a stigma around base that you guys weren't as much of a soldier or something no, like that? Like nerds. Okay, you were looked um, at as nerds? Yeah. <laughs> I always like to keep my guys having a very low profile. Okay. Um, so have I, a good time, just don't make noise, guys. Yeah, like, most of the time, people thought we were firefighters. Oh. Yeah. No one ever knew what we did most of the time. Really? Except for the people that we worked directly with. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was great that way. Because then the expectation of you being military, they, they wouldn't even know that we were in the military half the time because that would completely relax uniform standards and we had our own compound. And on base or off base, on, you mean? Or? Uh-huh. On base. Oh, okay. Um why wouldn't they know you're military if you're on base? Like, isn't it all military? Oh, no. Uh-uh. Okay. There's a lot of contractors. Oh, okay. Contractors are... Yeah. All over the place. Mm-hmm. Got it. So you mm-hmm. might hang out with people on, even in a forward operating base. Mm-hmm. Hang out with contractors, with mm-hmm. other branches, people that you don't have any idea what mm-hmm. they do. How many people lived on this base? It depends on the base. 
Um, on your up base? Up to, like, I've been a, I was on several different bases. Um, it just depends. Usually about a thousand. Okay. Maybe more, maybe less. The but smallest a, a one lot of a people. A few hundred. Okay. I mean, it, it depends. It's like a small city. Right. I mean, it's, it's. In the middle know. of Afghanistan. Yeah. Are you by a town? Yeah. Are you going there's, into there's town? Some a... people did. Okay. Um, but most of the time, no, unless you were like going there for a purpose. Um, yeah. Okay. So you're deployed in Afghanistan yep. for a year, ten months. What is ten it? Ten months. I was I was downrange for ten months, and then I came back. Okay. And I picked up another deployment to Iraq. So you came back to Houston. Yep. Saw your wife. Saw my house that I owned. Saw your family. Year. I slept in my house for 43 days before I left again. So you were home for less than two months, and then yes. you redeployed. I went to San Diego to start oh. workups again. Workups. Yeah, that's the, the pre-work for another deployment. Okay, did you do a workup when you went the first time? Not as much because it was a different environment. Okay. Um, you were, they piecemealed the teams together on that first one. On the second one, um, you owned your team from beginning to end. Okay, so the first one, they were, like, throwing together these drone teams. Yep. Okay, go. No, the the drone team was continuous. But they'd pull one person out and put one person back, and then pull another person out and put another person back. So it I wasn't see. like a rip of... Right. You didn't like have a team that would off. deploy yeah. together. Right. You A dude would show up, be on right. the team for a year, and other people would be cycling yes. in and out. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. And they decided to change that structure... No, this was a, I was with a different um, command. So I was with the Navy this time. So whereas the first time I was with the Army, this time I was with the Navy. Got it. And so this time we went to Iraq. Um, it was only six months, but I was there for pretty kinetic six months. Um, we did some really good work in the fight against ISIS. By really good work, I mean very kinetic work against the fight against ISIS. Um, and by kinetic, you mean very effective in we killed a lot of helping people. the grass grow. Yeah, we we uh, we watered, um, we uh, we fertilized a lot of things, and there's probably some very iron rich fertilizer. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was there for six months. That one was really rough because we were in the middle of a very kinetic period in the middle of summer. So it hit about 135 degrees outside. Our AC units never worked, and the food was horrible. So any of the creature comforts, if it was there. So it was either MREs or food with, like, maggots and crap in it. Ew. Yeah, it was horrible. Don't ever eat chicken. I still can't eat chicken wings, hardly. Because um, everybody get food poisoning on uh, wings. Or wing night. Wednesday wing night. Ugh. Yeah, there'd usually be 10 to 15 people a night that would get wing or get food poisoning out of 500 people Ugh. for chicken wings. Yeah, it was horrible. That is disgusting. Yeah. Um, it was horrible. Dang. So the Navy did not do as good a job with the chow as the Army did. Well, we were on an Army base. So we're Navy oh. on an Army base eating Army food. Okay. Yeah. Um, 82nd just... Airborne's freaking food cookies can suck a dick. <laughs> they can literally eat my dick. Um, you hear that, 82nd Airborne? Yeah, you guys sucked. Your cooks made a lesson. Yeah, seriously. If I could, If I could beat their asses, I would. <laughs> Because um, they were the worst horrible people ever. Okay. <laughs> okay. Goddamn and this trolls. Time, this time you were doing the exact same thing. Yep. You were running as a, a drone team as an O3. Yep. You ran a team of 12 20 people. people or 12 this people. This was or 12 whatever. people full time. Um, 
and that was I found out in the year that year that um, because of the successes that I'd had in Afghanistan that I picked up 04. Oh. So I did promote. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. So this yeah. was a big moment in your career because you were like, this it is never going to happen. And then you got a phone call. It was huge. And you're, what is an 04? Lieutenant commander. A lieutenant commander. Yeah. So that was kind of crazy. Dude. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was it was pretty cool. Um, at that point, like, I'd, I'd sacrificed a lot to get to that point. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was it was significant like that was a huge life period for me um the deployment was or being active was being active the deployment and all of that i hadn't ever worked so hard for something because at that point i've been told no several times by the navy that i wasn't going to have a career and somehow i still got it so getting to 04 is the navy saying you're good to make a career out of this if you want yeah you're a made man I can retire. As an 03, I couldn't retire. As an 04, I can retire. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you're you're in Iraq this time. Mm-hmm. Your wife's still in Houston. Houston. She decides to move to San Diego. Okay, because that's where you're going to be based when you get home. Right. Because okay. I, when I made 04, they also offered me a leadership position leading the unmanned air systems part of the navy okay so at that point i am so this was like a, a, a back on u.s soil type of yep. job where you're putting together just stuff, managing people budgeting things running timelines yeah personnel yep personnel issues budget issues you name it i was doing it you were an executive essentially basically. I, I was i was yeah basically a coo a middle level of. i was a middle level manager okay so i was a division manager is what i was okay the equivalent of that so Mel got um, accepted to University of San Diego um, between my GI Bill and her scholarships. She got a full ride to USD, which was awesome. Yeah, it's fifty grand a year. Like it's phenomenal for a for a broadcasting a public university. It's, it's a private uni- university. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's a private Catholic university. Oh, I didn't know that. San Diego State is a no University of San Diego. University of San Diego. San Diego State is a, a pub, or is public. University of San Diego is private. Oh, okay. So got it. Yeah. Wow. Fifty yeah. grand is it's no small ticket. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. So you finish the second deployment and you yep. move back to San Diego yep. to take this job. Yep. Now you're a made man. You're an O four. Mm-hmm. You don't take nothing off of nobody. Oh, I do because I'm an O four and I'm still a peon. Okay. I don't know what a peon. Oh, a peon. A peon. Yeah. Yeah, I know so, what a peon is. Um, still doing that and just I um coming back I mean at some, this point you had a very short kind of vacation home. Yeah. In coming between home, two a long lot of, deployments. Yes. So let's say just for the shake, sake of jazz, you hadn't really lived lived in the US for over a year and a half. I hadn't lived out of I hadn't lived anywhere permanent other than a war zone for 3 years. For three years? Two and a half years, yeah. Two and a half almost, for 30 months. 30 months I was either deployed, working up, or coming home. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Two months out of three, two months out of 30, I was in my own bed. 
out of 30 and wait there's i only two count, months out of 30 months i only count one deployment for a year in afghanistan and the second deployment for six months in but that was also six months worth of work uh, work up on either end oh wow okay so yeah 18 months total there whoa yeah okay so so, so you move home to I san diego home. yeah when I came home, Mel had done a great job at putting our house together and putting our life back together there, and um, we were living in Ocean Beach, and everything was pretty good um, until Thanksgiving of, what year was that? 2017, so two years ago. Is that right? Yeah, two years ago. Um, the house that we were living in, um, the had really really bad um really bad termites so i finally got the landlord to tent our house to get rid of the termites because i had a bunch of really nice rugs and a super nice wool suit and some other stuff that i was worried about the termites getting into so they tented our house and then they couldn't turn the gas back on because all the pipes leaked (laughs) so for 30 days and during this entire period her dad who is an exceptionally pushy man. Um, he um, was there for Thanksgiving, and that was horrid. Oh, no. Um, she and I and her dad and her stepmom all ended up staying in a hotel for Thanksgiving, and then I had to leave to go for some training um, at the end of that. So I couldn't even be around to fix that. Oh, dang. Yeah, so you had to leave at that your, point, you had to leave your wife right after Thanksgiving. Yes, in a termite-infested. No, in a, a hotel. In a hotel. Yeah. So at this point, I'd gotten home in, at the end of August from Iraq. Was home for two months and then was leaving for training in November, and everything just kind of fell apart. Um, I couldn't take the stress of that. I couldn't take the stresses with being married. I couldn't take anything and I just started shutting down emotionally mm. so um, there were some significant adjustment issues there that you know I think a lot of that drone stuff and the things that I've been through and you know the pressures of being home um, it was kind of catching up with you yeah I didn't have anywhere that I could run to so well and employed, also you hadn't really been married for a couple of years there like oh yeah I'd been single living my life living on a, the base yeah living in my own freaking tent had mice friends and that was about it yeah yeah call home right Right. but she's living her life you're living your life yep and then you're back and you're married and living together and you got freaking termites everywhere yeah and now you're leaving again yeah and i i couldn't do it so you know that was the beginning of the end of our marriage um wow yeah so i got back from the training at the end of january Things were pretty good. She got an internship in Houston uh, in May, and she's like, should I stay home or should I go? And I'm like, I think you should go. And when she left, like, my life just kind of spiraled even worse. Like, I, I couldn't, like, I, I started getting really worried about people from deployment coming after me because my number got kind of through, my phone number got shared with some people and some other stuff that kind of went sideways. And Wait, what? Yeah. What does that even mean? Well, one of the one of my my phone number got shared with a uh, um, a Shiite militia leader, a 
personal number, so I was really worried that they're going to come after my family. Dang. So why was it shared? It's a long story that I can't talk about. Okay. Um, <laughs> Change your number, Marty. Change your number. <laughs> it was too late. Um, by the time I got back and learned what had happened, uh, it was too late. Um, so I knew so you're not in a healthy state of mind. I'm not in a healthy state of mind. And then you got like this news where even a non-paranoid person would be like, yeah, it's probably not what I wanted. Yeah. So I kind of had, at that point I, I, you know, I should have gotten some mental health help to kind of work through some of this emotional and marital stuff that was going on. And, you know, I didn't. So I just kind of shut down. I shut my, you know, social media down. I didn't really talk about myself with people around me. I, you know, all of that. Oh, and then between her Afghanistan and Iraq, um, Mel's mom died and mm. my best friend died. Um, at the time, the old man Jack, he died while I was home. So, you know, I mean, that was that was traumatic. It was a, a mercy that you could be home for that. It but was still hard. Still, yeah. You know, so yeah. there was a lot of stuff that had built up that I couldn't deal yeah. with. Um, yeah, so, and this was a man that. Made a friend out in San Diego that was yeah, like was an old homeless man that was like also crazy. Yeah, yeah, he was awesome. Uh, you introduced me to him. He's, yeah, he was he was a really cool guy. He was a crazy old man. Um, so you know, through the summer, I just kind of shut down and I stopped living the life that I had lived. And you know, no one, all of my friends, had made an entirely new friend group that no one even knew my last name because I was so worried about people finding my family this and that and yeah it was irrational but there was some reality to it well it, it was a product of the right environment it was, you it was a it was in. it was a uh, you had adjusted right i had adjusted and i was tilting at windmills so these windmills look very dangerous to me but you know I, I straight up went at them um and what does that mean tilting at windmills from don quixote Oh, okay. Because he kept seeing the windmills, and, and um, he would tell Sancho Panza that he was going to go kill the giants. Right. Because okay. he said there were giants that were waving his, their arms at him. And right, okay. So he would tilt at the windmills and then fall off his horse or get knocked off his horse when the giant's arms would knock him off the horse. And, okay. But the reality was they so were you windmills. So you were tilting at windmills. I was tilting at windmills and getting knocked, knocked about. In August of 2018... Um, I had some stuff happen in my life where I got really drunk one night and I ended up waking up in somebody's that I didn't know, their house downtown in San Diego. My phone was dead and I had no recollection of how I got there and I realized that... Whoa. Yeah, it was bad. Um, so I was able to walk back to my buddy's hotel. And you are, I mean, you were in the military for quite some time. Yeah. You knew how to hold your liquor. Oh, I can, like, I can still drink like a motherfucker. Yeah. The, um, for you to be able to do what you did that night means you consumed I something incredible. To, yeah, something to kill anybody else. Um, the amount of liquor that I could consume or the amount of alcohol that I consume what, or could consume and was consuming that summer was, you know, it, I'm really surprised there wasn't permanent damage. Okay. Um, you know... So I got back from that burnout, and I just kind of... What is that, like a fifth a day? Is that is it? I like, don't know. Okay. Cause I, I you weren't paying attention. No. I was going out, and I was just, 
you know, put in a day at work and go out go and have a drink. Yeah. I had a, they called me which is, Marty. Which I is could, a no, normal um, single man's lifestyle in the military, right? right. Like that's part of. It, to an extent, but I was taking it to an extreme. Okay. Like I, could, I could push harder than anybody. Okay. Party like, Marty. I was Party Marty. Um, bartenders would go, I don't know how you do what you do without blow. Because I never did any narcotics or anything like that, but I could drink a whole lot. Um, and so in that August, you know, I realized that I was on the verge of having a substance abuse problem that was going to um, negatively impact my job and my life and all of that. Okay. So I started getting... You didn't want to wake up in a stranger's home again. No. There was no way I could ever let that happen again. Um, so I started going to... And why is that? Like, what was the what what was it about that as a wake up call that? Because I'm an officer. Okay. I'm a leader. Yeah. You can't be. There's a reputation on the line. Yeah, I mean, through and through, I couldn't allow that. Mm. Um, I wouldn't allow that kind of behavior from the people that work for me. So, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I started going to. Um, using some of the resources at my command to work through some of those emotional and mental health issues. And as I started getting healthier, became apparent that I'd lost my wife. Like I, I, you know, in her mind, I'd shut off from her over the summer and I had, I stopped talking and just was focusing on, this was last summer. This was summer of 2018. Okay. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was so hurt internally and trying to deal with my own internal wounds I couldn't focus on anybody outside of me right you were in a very 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 intense self-care time right um inward introspection introspection it was not self-care because I couldn't I didn't have the skill set to deal with the things that I was dealing with okay um but and this is already you had already shut down and your wife had already felt abandoned she felt abandoned and rightly so yep and Um, then you woke up and started to get help being proactively getting help with the people at my command and and things like that and at this point she was like it was too late yeah i didn't realize it um okay what what made you think it was too late like what is that what is that she found somebody else okay wow so she found a uh a boyfriend that was attentive to her needs and, um, you know, we kind of batted around fixing each other or fixing our relationship for a few months and it just became apparent that that wasn't something that she was interested in. Hmm. Um, and so we started the divorce process. Wow. Yeah. So that was pretty dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were already finally feeling like you we're going to come out of the other side of your own internal yeah stuff. i was getting healthy but it was too late to salvage you know the marriage mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And that's unfortunately you know one of the casualties that comes along with this line of work is you know people that have been where i've been and done what i've done it's like a 95 or a 99 percent freaking divorce rate i remember you telling me at one point that in the military they they have a shorthand. Your first wife is your practice wife. We still call it the practice wife. The practice wife. Yeah. Dang. Um, yeah. Because you learn, if you're not stupid, you only have one practice wife. Um, 
because you are, and I'm hopeful that I, I can do this, that you learn what you offered to create the situation that caused it to be a practice wife. Um, mm-hmm. Where Absolutely. you failed. Um, yeah. And that's what it came down to. I learned where I failed. Yeah. So. And you made that clear to her and for her it was just there I was already too much trust and too much hurt to really give it the go it needed I had wounded her so deeply and validated her sense of inadequacy so deeply that it was not recoverable yeah Um, when did you know that probably a couple months into the process of, of separating that there was just not going to be any help. So you started the divorce thinking this we might be able to come back from this. Yeah, I mean, and the reason I started continued. the divorce was I started working down the path of legally separating us because I, I wasn't sure. I didn't want to be in a position that where I didn't know what was going on. I hadn't at least set the groundwork to protect myself legally because I didn't know where her head was at. I didn't know who the man was that she had met. Um, he turned out to be a pretty decent guy. Um, but I did not trust the situation. Yeah, she'd already checked out of the marriage. She she was done. And you needed to, I mean, make sure that you I needed to make sure I was had protected. something at the end. That I was, I was, for my physical needs, they were protected as yeah. far as my assets and things like that. Yeah. But I was still hopeful that there would be some miracle reconciliation at some point. Yeah. So you did everything in your power to make it clear to her, hey, I'm protecting myself, but I love you. I want to make something work yep. here. That's what I tried. And and she helped validate that that just wasn't in the cards. Yep. And then it was, okay, That's now i got to continue yeah. to move on with my life. Yep. So at that point, again, I was still working a staff job. And that gets us up to, you know, I was working that until this summer when I started going over to this unmanned underwater thing. Okay. So and I'm still doing drones. So you're still doing drones. Yep. You're still out in San Diego. Yep. You're either, you're doing administrative work. Yep. The executive much. work. Yep. Okay. Basically just managing people and schedules. Got it. And um, throughout all of this, what was it like for you now that you're kind of where you are? Yeah. Looking back on, you know, pre-military Marty, kind of not sure career-wise where you need to go. Yeah. Going into the Navy, then coming out of the Navy and and realizing, yeah, that's not my career. Going into this this whole world of drones and and using them in the private sector right for this sure. multinational for the startup you tried sure. and then going back into active duty because drones lined up with yeah. a need that the military had and you you know right place right time right yeah um and now now because of all that you could argue you have uh, a huge chapter of your life where, you know, a relationship um, 
completely changed. Yep. I don't like to say marriage ended or these or no, like it. It, yeah. it was destroyed because I don't. I think that that unfairly pigeonholes what relationships are. But it definitely changed yes. forever, mm-hmm. hugely. Absolutely. Lots of pain associated with it. Yep. Um, you, <laughs> rightly so, had a lot of of mental health things to go through and also recentering in who you are as a person as a man now coming that out was, of that was the biggest portion of that the crisis of existence I guess is more what I had yeah than mental health almost crisis of existence because Fuck me. I went from being so incredibly mission oriented for years you know from being 16, 17, 18 years old, going, I'm going to get a degree. That was my mission. I got a degree. I'm going to do this. That was my mission. Very goal-oriented. I'm going to do this. And I'm going yeah. to deploy. And now I'm going to operate these missions. And I'm going to take care of these guys. And it was very black and white. Coming back to San Diego, where I had to deal with being in the position I was with the people I was, with having achieved what I had set out to achieve, I was on a precipice where I was like, what do I do now? You know, who am I? You know, everything is, uh, in my life has been about the people around me and achieving goals. And now I've achieved all my goals, what's next? And so that crisis of existence and that coupled with... And I couldn't, you couldn't think of any new goals. Like right. you were at a place where I'd achieve all the goals I could possibly think of to achieve and nothing else seems like a worthwhile goal right. to achieve. And I was hurting from, you know, fearing for, you know, people finding my family and things like that, that... Again, it wasn't completely rational. It wasn't completely irrational. But, just, I mean, you'd affected other families it was in the world. Being. Yeah, and exactly. People, there were people in the world living that had reason to look at you right. as the devil. Yes. And that was where, you know, I, I am very grateful for getting the guidance from some good mentors and things like that that I got. Um, mm. And... You know, I mean, the the outcome was it impacted that marital relationship negatively. But I'm in a very good place spiritually and emotionally right now that I wouldn't trade it for. Um, Hmm. And I'm really grateful for that. You know, there's, there's a... Being able to say no, or this is what I need as a human, or whatever, is cathartic and empowering. And that's what I think I learned. Can I do a quick check with these people? Yeah. Cool. I'm not sure if there is somebody coming in after us, but... Simple Life with Michael Jeffries is sponsored by Diaper. Diaper ships diapers right to your door that are free of nasty chemicals. No chlorine, latex, alcohol, perfumes, PVC, lotions, TBT, or folates. While they don't have that gross stuff, they are soft and durable and ready to cuddle with your baby's gross stuff. 
If you don't have poopy babies to put diapers on, you can buy a month of diapers as a gift for a friend. Click the link you'll find in the show notes and give the gift of diaper diapers. If you don't want any diapers, but you still want to support the podcast, you can like us, leave us a comment, recommend the podcast to a friend, things like that. If you have a story you'd consider sharing on the podcast, uh, visit anchor.fm slash a simple life and leave us an audio note with your contact information and a little bit about who you are. Um, We've got plenty of ideas for more interviews, but we're always interested in one more. Right at the end of the recording, um, you hear me go check and see about some people who were standing outside of the room we were in. And turns out they were waiting for it. We were over our time and we had to end the interview abruptly. Listening back, part of me really wants to hear what else Marty uh, had to say, was about to say. Um, And part of me liked how the interruption made things turn out. The, the truth is I could talk to Marty for days, so getting interrupted was a sort of beautiful way for the universe to assert herself and say, this episode's done. Um, it is hard for me to know that my best friend since we were 12 knows what it is like to kill a man. I'm glad I've never known what that is like. Many would argue it is because of the sacrifices of Martin and those like him and their families, that I've never known that feeling. I've lived like other first worlders, uh, one of the most decadent lives of any human that has ever walked the face of the earth. I've been the guy who wanted to believe that we humans can all coexist in peace. I'm the guy who puts the war is over if you want it, happy Christmas from John and Yoko poster up on his Facebook wall every Christmas. I'm that guy. But I'm also the guy who's proud of Martin. I'm honored to call him my friend. He's wise and kind and giving. He's loving. He's a war hero. Knowing Marty gives me the reality check that I don't have it all figured out. I'm just one guy with a myopic, opaque view of the world just like everybody else. Right at the end, that phrase Martin uses, crisis of existence, so striking to me as I listened back to the episode. It hit me in my gut, uh, realizing just how generous and vulnerable Marty was throughout this interview. He laid all of it out there. I'm not a war hero, so I I don't imagine my crises are the same as his, but I felt something like a crisis of existence, and it's hard. In my case, I tried to numb it away for a lot of years with substance abuse. If you're facing something like that, my experience teaches me that it is better to face these things with others. Uh, If you don't have someone you can face it with, leave me an audio message at anchor.fm slash a simple life with your email address and I'll connect you with a group of people that have changed my life in profound and wonderful ways. Uh, Honestly, they're still changing my life. It's been wonderful. Life happens. Sometimes it is hard, but we're all allowed to change as often as we like. The past is the past. We live in the now and we can make that whatever we want it to be. Uh, On a lighter note, (laughs) 
I told you at the beginning, Marty was a fun and intense guy. And I was right, wasn't I? So cheers to being right sometimes, even on a podcast where we're not trying to be right or wrong. Okay, so with that cuteness, uh, we'll end the episode. So see you next time.